Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's show. Got a whole bunch of cool stuff to talk about. And later on, Steve from HD Retrovision is joining us. He's actually a huge retro nerd and has contributed a ton to the community. So this is going to be a fun interview to talk with him about stuff. And um, we're not just going to be talking about his cables. We're actually mostly going to be talking about a bunch of other things that we've been working on together, things that are already up on the site, things that are coming up soon. So I really think everybody's going to be interested and I hope everybody sticks around to listen. But let's jump right into it. Artemio has released a new version of the 240p test suite with a couple of new features like a vertical scroll test, updated lag testing, and then he added an audio beep to the manual lag test. So it's a it's a basic update, it's nothing major, but as always, it's just an incredible piece of software. And anybody that uses retro consoles and RGB monitors or upscalers uh, really should at least try it out one, at one point or another just to make sure they can keep their equipment calibrated and kind of check all the different features and it's, uh, it's always a really cool thing to see, and I hope he keeps doing it and keeps putting new updates out there. Crix recently posted a picture to Twitter showing his GBA EverDrive in its shell. So he's been posting a few things on Twitter and the forums here and there the past few months, and it looks like it's pretty much done. So I'm assuming it's going to go into production and be available to purchase within a few months, maybe less. Um, I haven't heard anything from him at all, but I'll post back when there's an official release date. But I'm pretty excited. It's nice to finally have a GBA ROM card that I could just dump the whole ROM library on it and not have to worry about anything. Um, a lot of people have told me the Easy Flash 4 is good, but I used an old version of it that I didn't like at all. I guess it's great now, but I would just rather wait for Crix to come out with his and kind of check that one out. But as soon as there's any solid info, I'll definitely post immediately on Twitter and Facebook uh, for if there's a pre-order or anything coming up. There was a pretty heated discussion on the Atari Age forums about whether FPGA emulation is emulation or not. It was very technical and very detailed, and I'll leave a link for anybody that wants to read through, but I found it pretty fascinating, so I wanted to just skip to the end and give the basic synopsis of it, which is um, an FPGA is a programmable chip that's meant to work exactly like another chip. So while I guess it's emulation, you're actually just mimicking the exact functions of a different chip. Whereas a software emulator, like something you would put on your cell phone or computer or the Retron 5, that's software that's mimicking an entire system running on other layers of software. So they're two completely different things. And um, so I guess technically it still is, but if done right, um, it's pretty much imperceptible. And Kevin's Zimba 3000 actually even works with Lightgun games on the NES, so I mean, it's you're emulating that pretty exact then. So that's those FPGAs that he's used. He's actually reverse engineering it himself to make sure that everything is pretty much flawless. Um, so I'll leave the links if everybody wants to read through. I thought it was pretty interesting, though. The latest version of the N64 RGB board was released, both with the fine pitch adapter and with the ability to turn off the blur feature of the N64. And from the diagram, it looks like you could actually set it to auto or manual, 
And I'm not really sure exactly how that's going to work yet, but as soon as I get more details, I'll update it. But uh, it's cool that they're in stock and that Tim's keeping up with this. And as soon as I have more info on it and hopefully a demo, I'll report right back with that. A replacement stand for the Virtual Boy was just released. It costs $30, which is a pretty decent price when you consider how expensive most of the real Virtual Boy parts have been going for lately. I was lucky enough to get mine a few years ago for a very good price because the actual piece that um, goes into the Virtual Boy in the stand was broken. So I ended up just epoxying mine to it, and it's solid. This thing's never moving. To be honest, I really wish I had a real replacement stand so I don't have to make any permanent change like epoxy. But it's cool that they have that option now. I kind of wish that somebody would finally make that head-mounted visor thing, though, so I wouldn't have to creepily lean into this every time I want to use my Virtual Boy. Since we're already talking about failed Nintendo products, it's kind of funny that the Power Glove was in the news last week a few times. First, Ben Heck posted a video on his site about different ways he could use it for other projects, and then another group of people actually used it to power drones. I had one a few years ago that I had to drive for myself that I thought was really terrible, but I do actually have two power gloves that are useful. Both are oven mitts. This one's actually rubber and made to look pretty much just like it, but it doesn't fit my hand. And then this one, neatly called the power mitt, does kind of fit. I'm just gonna... So, yeah, the most useful power gloves I've ever seen are just oven mitts. Last week I updated the PlayStation page on the website with information on Sync on Green for PlayStation 2. So the short version is Sync on Green is a different way of getting 480p out on your PlayStation 2. I actually tried this a few years ago when I was first talking with Fudda about it, and then I kind of let it fall to the wayside because the PlayStation 2 isn't my favorite system and there was just so much work I had to do on other pages for other consoles. But then Phonedork kept bringing it up in conversation, and he kept reminding me about the noisy component video encoder inside the PlayStation 2. So I finally went back, updated the page with info, and then posted a pretty detailed video on how to do it. But the short version is, no matter what, an RGB SCART cable is going to get your best output for 240p and 480i on PlayStation 2. Um, but if you have the right equipment, or if you're willing to buy maybe an extra piece or two of equipment, you could use that same cable to also get a great 480p output. If not, you have to use the component video cables, which aren't bad. It's not as it's not like using composite video versus RGB. It's just not quite as good. So if you have a PS2 and you're interested in that, I would definitely check out the page and the video. Tim Worthington just listed the AV driver on his store as well. The AV driver is an audio and video amplifier that he designed a few years ago that's been passed around different developers for testing. It was originally designed for the PC engine, because that didn't have a native RGB amp in it. Um, but it could be used with pretty much any system as long as you either know how to take the measurements yourself or somebody else already has and you could just set the jumpers on it. This is something that I really want to dig into in the future. I've had one for a while and it's worked great for me. Um, and as long as the documentation comes together pretty well, I think it'll be a really cool thing for a lot of people to use. So I'll keep everybody updated on it and I'll post pictures and the page of uh, any installs that I use it on. And for the last piece of news, the G-SCART Switch was put up for pre-order again this week. And then it was taken down, and then it was put up again. So let me explain what happened. So Super G is doing all this himself from now on. I really don't have anything to do with it other than promoting it, because I think it's awesome. Um, and he opened up a PayPal account for this and started selling them, and then PayPal flagged his account once it got past a certain point. 
which I actually think is totally understandable and cool. They don't want to have anybody pull a scam or anything, so they just kind of paused his account for a few days just to, you know, ask him why all the money was coming in, what he's using it for, and just verify that he was an actual seller. And then once it got cleared up, it went right back up for sale. So the plan is now that he's just going to leave that up um, for probably a few more weeks, see how many pre-orders he gets, uh, put it on hold again while he places another order, and then immediately open it right back up again. So basically just, you know, let the money come in till he has enough to place a big order, place a big order, and then keep letting the, uh, the orders come back in to know how much to order for the next time. So unfortunately, this is kind of what you get when you have hobby projects, because, you know, he's not a big company. He can't just lay out $100,000 to make a ton of switches and then, you know, hope that he sells them all. So you got to be a little bit patient with it, but overall, it's pretty good. Um, both switches, both the uh, JP21 and then the SCART version are available, and they're both $225, which is $10 more than last time, but it comes with a power supply that costs $10, so it's kind of the same cost to the end consumer. Now onto the Q&A stuff. Since we were just talking about it, and since it had the most comments, I figure we might as well start with the G-SCART switch. Um, a lot of people, I think, maybe misunderstood kind of how things are working with this. So, I guess to break it down, there's two types of general projects that you see in the retro gaming community. There are people that release their products for free as open source, um, and there's a ton of these, and they're amazing. I mean, we as a community are able to do so much awesome stuff with our consoles that we would have never been able to do without this stuff. And generally speaking, the developers release it, and they help support it, but they leave it up to the public to kind of get it made and develop. And that's awesome. That's great. And, you know, that way they could walk away at any time. There's no obligation. Um, but what Super G is doing is the exact opposite. So he designed it himself. He's dealing with manufacturing. He had to deal with all of the costs of prototyping. And then uh, now he's shipping it himself and dealing with all support himself as well. So this is kind of the opposite. This is not something that you'd put all this hours and effort and money into and then just give away. Um, also, you know, it's it's not really fair to ask for somebody who spent that many hours to just kind of release it. Um, I guess if he ever got bored of selling it and, you know, said, oh, I'm tired of it, yeah, I'm sure he'd probably release it open source. But this is something that he's still doing as an active hobby. And... The cost, I think, was something else that people kind of balked at. But I think to tie in with the other comment is you just got to understand about the hours spent and about the money being made. So he's not making a million dollars on these things. And a lot of people don't seem to understand the costs involved in making a product. And I don't mean that in a nasty way, because if you've never tried to develop or release a product, you, there's just, you wouldn't know. So it's not like, I'm not accusing people of, of doing, you know, of being mean. I think it's just accidental ignorance. So, you know, if you have a product that costs you $10 in parts, and you sell it for $20, you're not making a $10 profit, not even close. There's so many little hidden fees here and there between taxes and shipping and supplies, where it just your margins have to be huge for any actual bottom line dollar. So yeah, $225 is really expensive for anything, but he's not making much because the total cost for him is still pretty high. Hopefully if we get enough pre-orders in, he'll be able to lower the costs eventually, but that's just, that's kind of a ways off. And um, also it's the amount of hours and money he's put into this need to be factored as well. So 
you know, I guess the analogy I like to use is if you count how many hours he spent from day one till now and how much money he's made, I guarantee you he can go get a minimum wage job making the lowest amount of money possible and end up having to make more money with the same amount of hours spent. So please keep that in consideration when you guys put your comments up. I think, without exaggerating, I would say 99% of the people were just amazing and supportive and awesome and it's so appreciative. But for the people that weren't, I understand that a lot of people don't don't get it, so that's fine. They didn't mean to post negative stuff, but there's just so much more that goes into it that most people don't even know about. So yeah, it's really expensive, but not because he's ripping people off. I mean, I, I guess kind of that was a three and a half minute way of saying that one statement. So I hope I didn't ramble too much. I just really wanted everybody to understand what goes into it and why you're not going to find the, uh, the G-SCART switch being open source anytime soon, whereas other products you might. So I hope that answers the question. And uh, if you guys disagree or if I forgot to mention anything, please just put that in the comments. Next question. Lou Billy asked if there's any differences between an arcade monitor and a professional PVM. Um, yeah, big differences. Um, Arcade monitors were designed just for that, and while they look awesome and certainly way better than a consumer-grade CRT, the professional monitors were designed for things like uh, broadcasts, uh, video editing, and then medical imaging, so they're way, way higher level. Um, and don't forget the cost, too. So I guess arcade monitors were about $1,000, whereas you know a lower-end PVM was 5500 and the 32-inch BVM I have was $22,000 when it was new in, I think, 2003. And I have another BVM that in 2007 was $28,000. So, I mean, literally 28 times the cost of it. Of course, it's going to be way higher quality. So it was a really good question. Um, but I guess the shorter answer is the arcade monitors still look great. But a BVM or a PVM is always going to look a lot better. And last question, Tarantulas asked if I'm going to separate the interviews from the roundups. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what to do with that. So I have some interviews that tied directly in with what we're talking about during the week, um, and others that are just separate interviews with really cool people that I, I kind of want to introduce to the rest of the world, I guess. So I'm not really sure how to handle that. I thought of separating them and doing an interview series, but you know, what if we do an interview and all we talk is about is the news that week? So. Maybe I'll do both. Maybe I'll separate the interviews for the ones that are standalone. Um, but uh, I actually was really hoping to get everybody else's feedback on that. So if you want, leave any comments, send me an email, whatever. Maybe I'll do a Facebook and a Twitter poll too at some point. But yeah, I guess I, I want to do whatever you guys want me to do. So let me know and whatever the majority wants, I'll, uh, I'll make sure to make it work for everybody. So thanks for the comment. Up next, we have a pretty cool interview. But first, I just gotta say, don't worry, this isn't like a sales pitch or anything. Um, Stee is a huge retro nerd, he contributes a ton to the retro gaming scene. And we're gonna be talking about stuff that I think most people that listen to the podcast would really be interested in, because it kind of applies to all of us and the different things we do, and we cover a lot of ground, and I had a blast doing it, of course. But, um, I just kinda wanted to give a little background about them and about how we met, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about them. And I think the biggest misconception is simply that the name of their company is called HD Retrovision. I think when they first came out, a lot of people thought they were trying to mislead people into buying their cables thinking they were making it HD. And I think a lot of other people thought maybe they just jammed an RGB to component converter and a cable and walked away and that was that. 
And both of those things couldn't be farther from the truth. First of all, their, their cables have a tremendous amount of research and development put into them, and they're really just very, very high quality. And second, I mean, they're two really cool guys. I liked them both, but I actually almost didn't even meet them at all. So, kind of a funny story. I know Chris, who's the owner of Retro Games Plus, a chain of retro gaming stores around the Connecticut area. And he introduced me to Lance Cortez, who runs, uh, I think he works on Retroware TV and helps run the Retro Gaming Expo in Connecticut. And Lance asked me if I wanted to be on an RGB panel with the guys from HD Retrovision. And I said, look, I gotta be honest, I don't know these guys at all. I don't know what they're about. I really wouldn't be comfortable doing it. I mean, how do I know these guys aren't just gonna show up and, you know, spend an hour pitching their cables? And Lance convinced me, well, look, let's just have a phone call. We'll all get on a conference call and kind of see where we're all at together. So I agreed, and two minutes into the conversation, it was just completely obvious that these guys were very cool. Um, this was not going to be a sales pitch. All they wanted to do was have fun and, you know, check out some retro gaming stuff. And yeah, of course, you know, show off their cables, but not the focus of it. And we did the panel, which I'll put a link to. Um, it was pretty successful. A lot of cool questions. A lot of people showed up. Uh, and they did a great job. I mean, it was all just about RGB and video signals. And yeah, they, they touched upon their cables, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the focus. So afterwards, we kind of grabbed lunch and hung out. And I became friends with Steve after that. Talked to him all the time. And, you know, it's uh, I'm really happy to have him on. And I hope at least people have listened up to this part and understand that, you know, please ignore a lot of the misconceptions on the forums. Please ignore all of the forum trolls always. And uh, just give him a chance because... Uh, he's just contributed a ton to the scene, and this has been a blast having him on the interview. So, um, yeah, hope you enjoy it. Hey, what's up, man? I'm here with Steve from HD Retrovision. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm yeah, armed I... with my Trooper beer, ready to go here. Hopefully I uh, have some fun stuff to talk about and enjoy a beer while we're at it. <laughs> Zero. And I, drank, <laughs> I drank a White Monster before this as well. What's a so white I might monster? have to pee at some point. <laughs> <laughs> What's a white monster? Is that like another Red Bull or? Uh, it's uh, Monster Energy, Energy Absolute Zero or something. Oh uh, yeah. It, I think it's the best tasting one. It's probably the worst one for you, but. Yeah, I used to. Um, I discovered the blue one on a business trip once. I had to. It was one of those things where my boss was like, "Yeah, fly in on Monday. You probably only need to do like a half day, and then you know, just make sure you stay in the area, have fun." <laughs> We showed up, no work was done, and the place was opening that Friday. So we worked 6 a.m. to midnight, four days in a row. <laughs> that, that blue monster kept me alive. It's one of the worst business trips ever. But. They call it sleep replacement. Oh. I got to buy some sleep replacement. Buy a case. They sell them in cases now, like a pen. Oh, Jesus, that gives jitters. <laughs> well, anyway, thanks for coming on, and I want to pick your brain about pretty much everything that we've been emailing about because I feel like. You know, I almost want to, like, have, start a public forum just on some of the crap that we've talked about because it's been so interesting, so. <laughs> yeah, I I love talking about this stuff, so, um, yeah, whatever you want to talk about. Cool. Well, um, I guess the first thing, just because it's relevant to what I posted last week, um, so you did work with the My Life in Gaming guys about the capacitors in PS2 and PS1 cables. Right. Um, and I, I got the basic idea of that, and so I guess there's... If you want to take out a scope and get the perfect signal, there's one set of capacitors that's best for the PS1, another set that's best for the PS2, and then one that'll work pretty much perfect with both. Is that true? Um, so I guess if you step back a bit, uh, if you look at what the official Sony cables did between the two, um, you kind of get a better idea of what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so in so in PS ones, they did, there weren't any capacitors on the main board. They were uh, in the uh, the cable assembly, the official Sony RGB card cable assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 470 microfarad capacitors, uh, and so um, that was meant to work with the PS one. In PS two. Um, because the component and the RGB are shared and there's, it's able to be switched by a software, um, they put the capacitors on the main board uh, of the PS2s and the PS3s. Uh, so if you hook up a PS1 cable into a PS2, the capacitors on the main board um, add with the capacitors uh, in the cable and if you put series capacitors in series, you uh, reduce the total capacitance, and you don't uh, want to do that. Um, there's a there's a a reason why like 220 is used mostly. That's the, the minimum you could get away with to avoid a type of distortion uh, called field tilt and line tilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's like the minimum you can get away with without having it look bad subjectively um 470 is common you see 470 a lot i think in ps3s they use 470 don't quote me on that i've got way too many schematics floating around in my head <laughs> could be yeah. wrong uh but the, the gist of it is um so the ps2 scar cables had no capacitors in them okay so it wouldn't reduce the capacitors that were on the main board i don't know does that make sense yes yes okay. And so what I was suggesting was um, I, I think it's impractical to have two different types mm-hmm. because all the connectors are the same. I think you can make one with a large enough capacitance, like maybe a 1,000 microfarad, such that when you use it on a, on a PS1, you get an equivalent of 1,000 because that's all that's in the cable. But when you use it in a PS2 or PS3, the reduction in capacitance how, you know, when stuff adds in series, it's like adding uh, resistors in parallel. It's the same effect. Right, right. Um, that effect gets reduced, and you don't uh, cause any of the added distortion or noticeable distortion. That's my opinion. That's what I got from it. I sent them, a, like, a test fixture. Uh, I sent Try a different test fixture with a different capacitor banks that you could plug in and see stuff. And I had some purposely low ones. So you could see what it looks like when it's way too low, like 10 microfarads. Yeah. Yeah, actually, let me, let me grab that real quick. All right, I just paused it to get it. So here's the contraption that you made. So basically, um, you'll have the standard um, PlayStation AV cable. And then I guess you have the, the different types of capacitors that could be used in each one. So if I wanted to try out uh, the bigger ones, which I guess... Um, God, I don't remember what I put on there. It's just so long ago. Yeah. Was it four? Is it a thousand? It might be a thousand. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And then uh, you have the output output cable that just goes right to um, RGB SCART. So this is pretty cool. I, I haven't had a chance to test this yet. I think it might be reversed. I think the PlayStation goes on the other end. You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's... it's if they weren't electrolytic caps, they wouldn't matter. But, uh, yeah, you want to put the PlayStation on that other end that has just a single connector? Yes, gotcha. Okay, so I um, I will be testing this soon, and I'm going to kind of update uh, the PlayStation section of my site with this because 
Um, I see you also included one for Super Nintendo. That's neat. I'll be able to try that as well. Yeah, and I, I think it, that one, I might have put a Switch in the connector. Is there a Switch on that SNES connector? Yes. Yes, it is. I forgot what that's for. <laughs> I think I think it's to change the sync. Over. Probably, I would assume, yeah, between uh, composite and uh, composite sync and composite video. But I think, I think yeah, because try only had a N64 modded but didn't have the composite sync. Or, so I rigged that up too. Um, so yeah. just, just so we could try, like, th- this issue isn't really affecting those that console, but uh, the thing about this distortion depends on signal content. Uh, so yeah. depending on what's happening on the screen is where you get this type of distortion. Um, See, yeah. I've had a ton of trouble with PlayStation cables, and I've also I probably get at least one email a week from people that are also having trouble, and a lot of them are just cheaply made cables. There was one with a, a weird ground loop issue because it had like the RCA connectors, like the um, the little breakout box in the cable itself, um, and there was even one I was testing with the Syncon Green that seemed to be wired okay, and I'd added a sync stripper in it because um, at the time I was using a switch that needed one, just the basic LM1881 uh, circuit. And whenever I try to enable, <coughs> excuse me, Syncon Green, it won't sync with my Extron RXI box. It just everything starts to go crazy, and I don't know if it's the capacitance, if it's the sync strippers too close, if it's so there's just so many issues. So I want to try that. I want to see how the different capacitors affect sync on green, if at all. I imagine it would have something to do with it, because if you're adding capacitance on a line that's carrying both green and a sync signal, that might mess with something, right? It could, but usually this, the distortion caused by the capacitance that's related to you know, how much capacitance you have um, is mainly a black-level shift. Mm-hmm. Um, you get you get some like sync distortion if you change rapidly, maybe from black to white. Uh, but I, I don't know, I don't feel like that is the issue. I'm not sure though. So if um if people have PlayStation cables now and they're not really having any issues with them, and they're they're definitely using it between PlayStation One and Two, is it worth popping open to see what's in there? Just leave well enough alone. If you don't see anything, I say don't worry about it. And what would be the things to look for? Um, the a weird black level? Wasn't there like shimmering on the screen or something? I'll so link there's to the Mark's video on that. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Link to to their vi- video on that. Um, there was there's two separate types of effects. One is the the line tilt or line time distortion, mm-hmm. where I think he was showing like the the menu box in like Chrono Trigger, where there was a hard edge on the menu box uh, and it kind of smeared over. To like the left. That's right. Yes. Yes. That's that's a line. uh, That's a line tilt. And then the field tilt was also in the Chrono Trigger. I noticed is when he was playing the 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 cutscene at the beginning, where it had like the box of the video, and there's black everywhere. And at the very top of the screen, you see like this kind of. It kind of looks like when they try to make fake widescreen, when instead of black bars, they kind of put like the right. third like version of stuff that's happening on the screen. Yes. A little bit of that at the top. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I'll link back to the video and I'll link to the exact time in the video where you could see that too. Um, 
So, and then if people see that or if they just want to be super anal about it, um, either add uh, – I'll double-check your email, but add the, the one higher capacitance to, to the cable that it could be used with both, probably the 1,000 or the 470. I think Mark was saying he put 470 in his, and it worked fine, but I'll put the exact link to that, and I'll even try to link to DigiKey for people that want to buy them. Um, and if they want to do one cable per each – or for each system – so it's uh, nothing in the PS1 cable and capacitors in the PS2, or did I get that backwards? Yeah, that's backwards. Okay. So it would be 220 in the PS1 cable. 220 or 470. 220 is the minimum you want to go. Okay. Uh, and, and yeah, nothing in the – that's why that, that, uh, that board I gave you, that last one, has just jumper wires. Right, I saw that. And straight. you could also – you could take those out and put whatever capacitors in there. It's just a socket. So it's like a custom. Yeah, that's neat. I think I saw that. So that's just the uh, just the straight up jumper. If you wanted to go yeah. without anything at all. Yeah, that's, so. yeah. That if you do it like that, it's uh, it's called uh, well, it's not DC coupled because the caps are in the, hmm. in the PlayStation. But uh, so my reasoning behind a thousand is in a worst case, let's say you have uh, PS2. I think the older revisions have like 220 inside the board and if you uh add them with a thousand it like equivalents like 180 so you don't lose that much um and so that felt that that was probably the best compromise and i think you can f they sell thousand microfarads at the correct voltage uh that would work in like a that type of application that would uh, fit inside like maybe like a SCART connector or something like that mm -hmm. They make them like small, I think. So what happens with the opposite effect? So say you're mostly a PS2 user, so you get a Syncon Luma cable, there's no uh, capacitors in it at all, and then you use that on a PS1 um, with you know no capacitors in it. What's the downside to that? You know, What would PS1 users see? There's a lot that could happen. First of all, I don't know if the, uh, the chip can drive a line like that. It can. I have tested it. <laughs> it can. Okay. Uh, um, it's and that's good. But another thing you might, even if you could do it, uh, there is a maximum pin you or a pin current you could pull out of the pins of ICs, and you might be violating like a data sheet requirement. It might work, but I don't. Right. I don't know. So so uh, what you're doing by putting a capacitor in there, you're doing something called AC coupling. You're removing the DC bias of the the video signal instead of it floating uh, somewhere so, so this is these are all single supply uh, circuits inside so they they, they range from zero to five volts mm -hmm. um, and at some point they set like a bias level so your video can swing around it um, but if you just drive a video line like that then you can have something that goes up to four volts just because your bias is high you're driving way too much current that you don't really need to. So if you put a capacitor in line, it'll remove just the DC bias. You still get your signal, but uh, that's why you put capacitors, but you need to put the correct value such that uh, you have you form a filter with that capacitor and the 75-ohm resistor at the source and the 75-ohm resistor at the load, so equivalent 150 mm -hmm. uh, Ohm with a capacitor, and that needs to be a certain frequency. Um, 
that that's the whole theory behind right. it. I don't know. I probably can't <clears throat> everybody. So whenever I talk about these things, so I um I worked on a project design team for a while, and I was the middleman. I was an expert at nothing, but I knew just enough to be able to kind of like speak the different languages. So I could, you know, the software programmer that didn't like to talk to people, I could talk to him yeah. and then relate his info to the hardware guys. And I, when it I came know to, what that's all about, yeah. <laughs> and when it came, to, uh, came time to actually ship product, I would always have to break things down into, because the electrical engineers, no offense to yourself, <laughs> would not want to ship a product unless it was absolutely flawless. It's wrong. Right. This is wrong. We shouldn't do it. There's yeah. a couple different types of wrong. There's wrong with absolutely zero ill effects other than maybe it would be better than if we did it a different way. There's wrong as this product that could have lasted 20 years is now only going to last 15 or 16. Yeah. And then there's wrong where it's you're going to damage your equipment. Maybe right. it's a week, maybe it's a month, but it will be damaged at some point. So – by running it uh, PlayStation 1 without the capacitors, or really any any console that requires resistors and caps in it, by removing those caps, what level are we looking at? Is it going to be, you know, will it eventually harm your consoles, or, like, is it just no big deal? That's a great way to phrase the question, too. Uh, uh, but, yeah, uh, it's not... See, I, I don't know... It depends on the thing that's driving the video line. So it's not universal across all the consoles. And I would say, in general, though, if I had to generalize, you're probably at the middle level. You probably won't damage something, and you probably won't see any ill effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, they're design- they weren't designed to do this. Like, right. There's a reason why they put the caps in. And so you're, you'd be using it in a way it wasn't designed, so there's a possibility you could mess something up. I wouldn't recommend it. Like you said, it, it could be – I think there was a guy who did a like a SNES component video mod, and he was just driving stuff out of these pins that were just meant to go right back into the mm-hmm. IC. Uh, but they were using them to drive a video line. I think – I could be wrong on this, but – I might be remembering it wrong, but didn't that like bust up some video chips that because they were pulling too much current out of those pins? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think every time I've seen it do damage, and any time I've damaged anything, it's damaged the console itself. I've never right. damaged a monitor from it. Um, oh or, no, this wouldn't and, damage a monitor. Right. So it's you know, yes. I guess that was the other question too, because there's been a few scenarios where for doing a demo or testing something, I had to run something this way. Um, when we did the demo, when I had that one SNES outputting RGB, S-Video, and uh, Composite at the same yeah. time, I ended up just uh, running two RGB lines off the same chip, blew the chip out. <laughs> so it was one of those things where it was for a demo, it's totally fine, don't mind that I wasted the SNES because yeah. a lot of people got to see it, but as long as it's console end and not, you know, no one's going to ruin their framemeister, ruin their um, their TV, then it's a little different. No, no, it shouldn't uh, ruin... Um... It's very unlikely it would ruin the uh, monitor or the sync device, the load device. Uh, I okay. have to have a really small-sized load resistor, uh, like you know, 402, like super tiny microscopic that has like no wattage in it, and mm-hmm. dump like four volts um, into this thing, and then it would dry up. That's very unlikely. You have big resistors on there for this reason. You know, to be safe. Gotcha. Um, 
but yeah, it's more on the console end because you don't want to pull too much current out of these driver chips. Mm-hmm. And by AC coupling it, you reduce the amount of average current that's going through. And so it's a hard question to answer. I'm sorry I'm rambling. About no, no, that's cool. This is interesting, you know, and if um, uh, I'm glad you answered it like that, but um, yeah, that's cool. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I sent you a link to something Tim Worthington had posted on Shmups about um, sync signals and sync strippers. So I guess I need to kind of rewrite my sync page a little bit, well, the sync stripper page, because the way I've always looked at using something like this is there's two reasons one would use it. You have a perfectly fine signal, everything's exactly the way you want, there's no distortion, but something in your chain requires uh, pure C-sync without anything else on the line. So you just stick a quick sync stripper in the SCART head and you're done. It's not, maybe it's not perfectly the best electrical signal, maybe it's not, you know, flawless to spec, but it won't hurt anything, either console side or TV, and it solves your compatibility problem, end of story. Then the other side of it is people that are actually getting distortion on the lines. There was uh, lots of N64 with that checkerboard pattern I've seen online. Um, and that is where I would create the sync stripper circuit as close to the video chip as possible. Right. So I would take, you know, Luma right off the chip into this with the correct circuit and then run the wire out to the multi-out and then be done. Um, so I guess my, my question would be when Tim was saying about building a different type of circuit around the LM1881, would, when does that matter in both or either? And once again, just to, you know, the electrical engineer thing, yes, there might be the, the right way to do it, yeah. but in the SCART end, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't think that matters. Let me know if it does. But can you kind of shine some light on that and maybe explain a little bit about what he was talking about? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try my best. Uh, so the one thing I noticed in that like real, little write-up that he wrote is that he was on, he was assuming that you're using a, proper 75-ohm cable impedance, mm-hmm. which unless you have that multi-core upgrade from retro console accessories, most cheap SCART cables mm-hmm. are not impedance-related. They, they have no defined cable impedance. And so, you know, they're just wires in a bundle. Uh, right. And so... So by default, you know the the official like cores that the that the company makes the console uses they use shielded 75 ohm uh, impedance cables, uh, and with prop you know the proper shielding. So in general, when you use that, you don't get those checkerboard effects mm-hmm. because the the whole reason you get that type of noise is that the composite video has color in it and the color is like the sine wave that's really like this goofy pattern that's not correlated to like any of the brightness changes of normal video and so that couples magnetically couples in the neighboring wires your rgb wires and your audio and you get the hum mm-hmm. and you get this you know your rgb gets distorted but that that happens this is what tim was saying that only happens if there's enough current through that line to create a big enough magnetic field to induce into the neighboring wires. Mm-hmm. So the normal way people hook up the sync stripper at the end, at the SCART end, is they don't put a 75 ohm uh, resistor to ground, and so you don't get large currents going through. You get very small currents. But what Tim was saying is if you don't, so you don't put the resistor, okay, that solves the problem of the high current, 
uh, going through the line, inducing it to your neighboring lines. Mm -hmm. uh, but it then it causes the problem that you're running the wrong, you have the wrong load resistor on your video line. But then I, that's assuming you're using a 7500 <laughs> line and you're not anyway. So, uh, so basically, he was talking. He was talking in details and semantics. So if you're using your basic cable, uh, RGB SCART cable, that's just pin to pin. There's nothing in it other than, of course, the the capacitor and resistor, depending on the cable. But um, it, it's not like you're going to get a performance difference, or you're not going to get noise on the line by adding it without the 75 ohm resistor to ground. It's just. Well, I, I mean, you have to do some testing because having no load resistor is probably going to get you worse he was talking about reflections mm -hmm. like there's no if there's no load resistor then like some of the signal reflects back and mixes with the signal that's coming in and so you get like some of these maybe your uh your sync pulse might like dip down a little bit and then dip down more because it's adding with the reflection mm -hmm. so you might still get stuff but you might not need to put a 75 i don't know uh mm -hmm. it's because because you're not using the right uh, impedance. It's a hard question to, hmm. to answer, but uh, yeah, I'll um I'll I'll pass all this info on to uh, the guy that I know is now going to be making the sync and scart boards for that. Hopefully, he'll yeah. be able to tweak them. Um, I'm not selling any more parts for this exact reason. Like every time I, I make something, because I'm not an electrical engineer, so I'll test the circuit. It'll work great. People will ask me to make them so I can sell them. I'll make 50 of them, and then I sell 40 and realize there might have been a slightly better way of doing it. And then yeah. what do I do? Do I email everybody and say, hey, you know, it's probably perfect, but so it just, I don't, I don't want to be part of that. I want to be the guy that talks about it and writes about it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, it's, it's hard. But it's when hard. you're installing a sync stripper on the inside of a console then, so there's a lot of different yeah. scenarios, one of which I'll, I'm going to ask you next, but you that makes more sense. definitely want to do it on the inside and you want to do it 75 ohm to ground to make sure that there's nothing else on there. I don't, you wouldn't need, uh... You wouldn't need the 75 on the ground though, because that you, your your wire is this this long. It's very short. Oh, so the basic sync stripper signal. Um, I'm sorry, diagram and schematic that I have posted. Everybody posts. That's actually okay then for inside the console because you're, there's really you know there's less than an inch on a wire at that point. The, the only thing I would worry about is uh, violating the maximum voltage you could put on that uh, on that pin for input. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have like a two volt signal um, and it's only rated for like one and a half volts, if you had a 75 ohm, 75 ohm, your voltage divider you're cutting in half down to one, then you're okay. But if you don't put the 75 ohm and you still have two volts going into that pin, you could violate that that data sheet requirement. So then you'd have two volts going down the sync pin all the way down the cable rather than one. Is that right? Well, we were talking about inside the console. Yeah, inside. So now, but you have it. You have the sync stripper inside the console, and then you put the out the output of the sync stripper onto the multi out, which you know you're talking wires that are less than you know, you know a few inches each side. Oh, so, you're talking about that end of the sinks. Yes, yes. Okay. okay. Uh, so what Tim was showing in his circuit was typically if you're driving a SCART interface, mm -hmm. they they expect the video signal level. If you just drew, drove the output of the uh, that LM1881 directly to a SCART device, there's 
you're kind of violating the skirt spec. Because well, I think to be specific, skirt. though, I think the majority of people, and I, uh, people in England are probably going to email me and, and tell me I'm an idiot for saying this, but I still think the majority of the people that are using these things are on RGB monitors and processors now. I think okay. it's very few that are actually on the SCART TV. Um, without, because even uh, lots of flat screens now in Europe that still have a SCART input, it's you're still going to mostly want to uh, upscale that. So, um, but I'm I'm pulling up my um, I'm pulling up the diagram now. So, basically on the output line, um, yeah, it is directly out. There is nothing on that. So so yeah, the, so that's a logic level. That's a TTL level. It could swing anywhere between zero and two and a half volts anyways, zero to five volts. And uh, the SCART interface, if you abide by the standard, and um, then it's at the video end after it's terminated at 75, you should have 300 millivolts, mm-hmm. 0.3 volts. And so that's why it's in Tim's diagram, he has that 470 ohm series resistor. Gotcha. Huh, all right. So, so he's he's voltage dividing down the logic level to video. Level. All right. That's what the output is. Uh, so then, just that basic signal that has the LM1881's output directly to like the multi-out sync pin, um, that still is okay then, if, as long as it's all inside the console and there's not long wires creating any kind of noise. If the, the receiving device you're hooking it into can accept that high of a swing on the on the input pin, um, well, every every scenario that I've tried does. So all the RGB okay. monitors, all the processors. So at that point, it's not like um, you're not sending too high of a voltage to those because they all have some kind of voltage protection anyway in there, right? Right. Right. Because I mean, we're not talking about accidentally sending 12 volts through. You know, we're talking about within levels of one volt. So. Well, it would be like five volts. Right. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna put that on a multimeter and test it again now, just to make sure. It, it depends. I mean, if if you're just talking about specs in the SCART standard, that's you're violating the standard. But in practical use, it might not matter depending on your equipment. Interesting. Yeah. Well, since we're already talking about sync, I might as well bring up the Nomad issues that I've had. Oh, yeah. The so it's pretty funny, too, because my buddy Justin um, just, you know, I got a package in the mail from him. I open it up, and there's a Nomad. I said, what's this for? He goes, mod it. Mod it for what? He goes, I don't know, but I guarantee you if you give you a week, you'll find something to do. <laughs> I'm like, all right, fine. That's fair. And then a couple days later, I happened to be at, like, a, a Retro Games Plus trade, trade-up thing, and I ended up buying my own, so I had two to test with. So now I had two, um, their serial numbers are pretty far off too, so I had t- at least two different revisions that I could start testing. And the, I sent you a video on the different tests I did. I don't really want to go into that because a lot of the stuff I did probably wouldn't make sense unless you were, I mean, you're going to get it, but unless people were there and heard the whole story. But I guess to sum it up, there are some scenarios where you plug in an RGB SCART cable into a Nomad, plug it into a display, works fine. Other times, the signal goes nuts. So I went by my default and thinking, well, if the problem's sync, let's cut the sync line and then use Luma, and that worked perfect. But I really want to know why. And I guess more importantly, if it's if it's a 20-page explanation as to why this happens, and you know, one of these star and sun and moon has to align scenarios, I don't want to put that right up on the website because I don't think anybody would really want to get into that detail. 
But I'm still just baffled as to how that could be. And I thought maybe at the very least it was the 75 ohm resistance that's sometimes required on the line. So like if you've seen RGB monitors that have the in and out, some of them need that cap on the other side. So I tried adding that and it didn't make any difference, but some scenarios it just worked perfect. So I don't get it. Do you have any idea on, on why you think that could be? And uh, yeah, so I investigated this like back when My Life in Gaming did their Genesis video, and they heard reports about this Nomad problem. And um, I don't tell them, but I ended up staying up super late that night to investigate for them. <laughs> and I, I kind of found out what was going on. Um, and it has to do with kind of this whole sync, C-sync, and loading stuff down with resistors. Uh, I'd send you a diagram. Uh, it's like it's like an MS Paint drawing of me thinking. Yeah, what? I saw that. That was cool. So uh, is it because the LCD screen on the on the Nomad's console itself is also pulling an RGB video, and so you're technically having two sources draw from the same, or two uh, displays draw from the same source? You do, but uh, it's not really the RGB lines directly. It's the sync. So you have this sync line that is feeding uh, the LCD uh, controller encoder thing and the video encoder for the output um, and then also the output itself. And so if you put a 75 ohm uh, resistor to ground, which is what you do when you plug into a SCART interface or a uh, monitor, uh, you're loading down that, that sync line and so you're pulling the voltage way down on that line. Normally that's fine for the video encoder to still catch sync. But what I think is happening, and I don't, this is just the theory, is that that's, that line though, the one that, that sync line is pulled down, doesn't affect the video encoder, but it's affecting the LCD um, uh, controller, the, LC, the controller for the LCD. And I think the LCD is using that, uh, that sync signal to do like some sort of clamping operation where it's uh, restoring the DC level. And if you load it down too much, it's not working right. Then it's injecting problems back into the RGB back that's still feeding right. the video encoder. Um, and so, so every, so I would take, all I did was take the nomad output and I was putting different size resistors to ground. And I, I don't remember, this was like in October, August or something. And there was some point where it was enough, voltage drop to cause the effect to happen. So that's why when I plugged it into the sync strike, um, it, it didn't put a load on it because it was taking the sync signal and manipulating it and sending it out, uh, you know, without... I don't, I don't know what the equivalent circuit of the sync strike It's is. pretty much just an LM181. I don't know if they do... There's probably no termination on the input. If there's termination on the input, you get the same problem. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So obviously now the, the easiest solution would be to just use an RGB SCAR cable that gets sync from composite video. Yeah. But, but good uh, ones are expensive. And, and that, yeah, and that always and, add other issues and everything yeah. else. Um, yeah. Doing what I did of cutting and adding Luma uh, seemed to work perfect. The only issue with that is if you have any um, anything that requires C-Sync, um, you know, Loom is not going to be compatible, so you'd actually have to put the sync stripper inside, just like we were just talking about. Um, right. And that would that would definitely work. Um, but I was just wondering if, there, you know, if there's any, I mean, if people were really into this and they had a Nomad and they just really wanted it, to, you know, they didn't want to mod their Nomad, but they wanted the best possible output, you know, do they, 
just by a sync strike? Is there a way to add a different component inside the cable, or is it just... You might be able to add a resistor in series with that to um, to cause the voltage drop to happen more on the side that you're connecting to externally and less to happen on the inside of the Nomad. Now, did this happen with your cables? Did you try your cables on a Nomad to see what happened? So th this is what... Uh, confused me when they first told me because I, I've used the Nomad. I go into like stores and test TVs with the Nomad. Got kicked out before. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would use, I was using old my old prototype, which used CSYNC as the source, and I never had any problems. Never had any issues. Interesting. I, I'm not a my cable is not a SCART device though. It it doesn't act like a normal SCART device. Right. Uh, because I'm not driving full video lines, and so I use that trickery to make the everything work. But um, so that's why I was confused why it wasn't working, and so that's what made me investigate that. And I noticed every time I loaded down the line enough, you'd get the goofy effect. Hmm. Uh, so all right, well that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I was I just but, I remember getting a Nomad like. Uh, you know, whenever whenever consoles go through their cycles, right? Like for Xbox, or the original Xboxes now I can get for like $10 a piece, you know. And I'm sure a couple of years from now they're going to go back up in price and be yeah, too yep. much. And when the Nomads hit that, I think I ended up getting one for like $30 on eBay or something. And I loved it. Awesome. And then I ended up, you know, when I needed cash, sold it for like 100 bucks or something. But um, I'm happy to get one and play with it. But I think I'm going to keep the, the Cut Luma mod in mind just so I don't ever have to worry about this. You know, it's just not something I have to deal with. But yeah, I mean, I could cool. I could try I could try looking into um, seeing what resistor would work in that situation to uh, allow the LCD thing to function properly and give you enough voltage on your sink to go out to your other device. Hmm. Cool. You could probably figure that out. Um, yeah, I think I'm just going to mess with it, to be honest, and see what happens. Then I'll email you and <laughs> tell me if I did anything wrong. <laughs> okay. okay, no, I'll, I'll, I think I think based on my the data I have on the thing, I could probably calculate something you could start at. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Around from there. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to ask you is something that's been absolutely driving me insane, and you've helped me a ton with this. We've exchanged a million oh, no. emails. I know you I know what you're talking about. Sega Master System. <laughs> oh god. Oh, it's it's you know it's been such a nightmare. I love that old system. I when my neighbor wanted a Genesis, he, you know he was like a born salesman and he convinced little me to buy his Master System so he can get you know enough money, and I brought it home. Then you know he, he just made it seem like it was the greatest system on the planet, and I I bought that and his Atari. And I think I used the Atari once and was like ugh, and then I just loved the Master System. I had Space Harrier 3D and and a couple of just, like, arcade games that actually felt like arcade games. Some of the NES ports at the time weren't weren't really good. And so I always have, like, this, you know, this strange affinity for the Master System. I always loved playing it. And then once I discovered FM Sound games, that blew my mind all over <laughs> again. And so I guess the, the problem, inherent problem, to sum it up for the listeners, is... Um, I could take a Genesis and get perfect signal out of it. So sometimes there's ways of manipulating the, the Sony encoder that's already on it, so there's no jail bars. My preferred method is usually just to do a bypass because I'd rather rely on brand-new components, not 30-year-old components. That's still up for debate on whether that's right or wrong. But 
no matter what I've tried, no, there's no master system signal that I've ever gotten to be flawless. So it's been a tremendous improvement. The stock outputs, and I'll, I'll put links to pictures, and I think I still have some up on my website now, but the stock output of a master system RGB is just horrendously bad. Um, if you're using an RGB monitor, maybe it's passable, but if you're using an upscaler or a capture card, you're just you're seeing all of the horribleness. Um, and it is harder to fix on a master system, but doing the RGB bypass, especially when I did it with a completely different connector, so I didn't even have to cut anything on the motherboard, just took RGBs from the chip, put it through an amp out to a different uh, multi-out, was a massive, massive improvement. But then there was still a little bit left, and it wasn't enough. It, it, I guess the best way to put it is the, the few people that I know that have done this RGB bypass to theirs have all emailed me and said, you know, thanks for sending me the board. This is awesome. I love it. It's perfect. But there's enough there where I was just curious why. So I emailed Tim. I emailed you. And Tim came back with a fix and, uh, on his PAL master system. Right. Basically said, this is fine. It's perfect. Check this out. And it just obviously, you know, it's a different board revision, so I didn't try it on mine. And that's when you and I get to talking. We tried a few things. I tried lifting all of the pins off the board, you know, to the point where there's nothing, you know. I, I even uh, snipped the lines, um, the pins on the board, on the chip itself, so they're really short, so there's not creating any kind of interference. And right, then we were, have we were doing lines. like high speed gigahertz RF stuff. Oh yeah. Then you know, <laughs> soldered the lines to each one and each one is to ground. So the actual video line is like a millimeter long and then right. the grounds are all tied down. So just to make sure there was no possible R you know, interference at all, nothing yeah. and it didn't do anything. <laughs> now, there was one where when I lifted all the pins and then you had a, a suggestion of doing something there was a small improvement over just doing a bypass, but it wasn't enough that I would recommend anybody other than crazy people like me to do. But I think what we did is we like lifted the two pins to connect the signal for the clock, because that clock frequency is the same frequency as the color subcarrier for you know, mm. consoles, uh, and that's where you get your jail bars from is that frequency. Uh, and so we were we like shield grounded it lifted the pin, went to the other pin, because that's the only place it really needs to go between the, the CPU and the VPU. Right. Uh, and still, like, it, it didn't do anything. I thought, I think uh, my theory, and I told you this, and I might be true, I don't know for sure, is that, like, the coupling of the noise is happening in that chip. So... I've also seen on Genesis consoles that I've done the RGB bypass to, um, where, like, I always use Sonic 2 because the title screen, it's so crystal clear and there's so much blue, it's easy to see any interference. Um, you know, you, you'll put Sonic 2 in, uh, even using an EverDrive, the same uh, ROM cart, so you know it's not the ROM cart creating interference. Sonic 2 looks perfect. You load up a Master System game, and it's... There's something there. You could see it with a capture card, but not really anything else. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. And is that? And it's not enough where I would go hunting down a fix, but it's enough for me to think: is the problem in the inherent chip itself, the way the master system works, or is it like? So I, this is with a power base converter. No, this is an EverDrive, uh, a Mega EverDrive. So oh. it runs, you know, runs both uh, master system and Genesis consoles. And it's just, you know, you, you take a screenshot of the Sonic 2, which has that big blue opening, and you zoom in and you see zero interference at all. And you take a screenshot of Hang On, which has, you know, it's a different shade of blue, but it's still 
you know, a blue background, and you'll occasionally see something. Not a lot, only if you zoom in and only if you're really looking just for testing purposes. And I was just, it kind of baffled me as to why, because it's going through the same exact chips, I, th I think at least, right? Um, it's going through the same chips, though. The thing I could think of is that it's, I, I don't know how Genesis operates in Master System mode. It could turn on a, a clock signal that it needs to run the Master System games, which is that 3.58 megahertz. And now that that's there, causing more noise, like, it could be because of that. I, and normally when you're running Genesis games, maybe it doesn't generate that clock signal. But when you're running Master System, in, in, uh, normally you do it through the power base, and it's going through the... Uh, it's got to hit the cartridge, right? It's a, right, yeah. Data signals from the cartridge. Uh, I think that also gets a clock signal too, and probably needs that same CPU clock. I, I don't know. I'm guessing here. Yeah, it's a good guess. And just to reiterate for anybody listening, it's uh, Master System games on Genesis are awesome. It's perfect. So what I'm talking about is simply for testing purposes, just to try to, to hunt down the Master System problem. Maybe I'll test through the Genesis to see. But and for anybody using it, there's you know nothing to worry about. But but that, so, I think that that's the key that the uh, the CPU clock frequency for Master System is the same for the NTSC color encoding, and that's what jail bars are. They're the color, the sine wave at that frequency, getting coupled into your other video lines. And the reason why Tim didn't have his problem is that on the PAL system, they output a separate PID. Even though the CPU clock frequency is still 3.58, they can't use that for PAL color encoding. So they output a, the 4.43 megahertz PAL frequency out a different pin that goes to the video encoder and stuff. And so he, when he was fixing his up, he was, uh, you know, making sure that that frequency wasn't getting into stuff. I don't know if the other frequency was still or He said it looked fine, so I don't know. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting, and thank you for, for explaining that, because that's a good theory. And that, the only other thing that I kind of, I think you, you explained to me once, but I forgot what you said, was I have Hang-On, um, you know, the Hang-On Safari Hunt cartridge, and I also have the, the card, the Sega card of Hang-On, the ones that kind of look like the TurboGrafx-16 yeah, cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on a monitor, it's identical, but when I'm using my capture card, if I use one of them, there's a black border, and if I use the other one, there's a blue border. Wait, is it outputting at a different resolution? Was it? Do you remember that at all? Um, I do. I don't remember you saying that it was dependent on the device you were connecting it to. I thought it was dependent on it was the card version or the... exactly cart versus card. Right. Slightly different through my capture card. So okay. why? Why didn't you figure out why that was? I, I thought. I think it might have been related to uh, when I was writing when I was doing research for the cable project. Uh, I wrote software for like all the consoles we were targeting, and I wrote Sega Master System software, and I would run in the emulator, and it'd be exactly what I wanted. I got these color, this color bar pattern, black border around, so it doesn't, it's easy to hit on the oscilloscope, and then I would burn it to the EverDrive, pop it in, and there's like a blue border around everything. I'm like that wasn't on the emulator, <laughs> and then I found out that there's a uh, there was some bit in, in a register in this APU that sets the border color. And I have a feeling that just that one ROM has the border color set to a different color than the other ROM. They're not the identical ROMs on there. Um, 
and that that's what I thought think is going on. It just hmm. set, has the different border set. And it's not. It was it took me so long to find that like that piece <laughs> of information. It was online somewhere, but I had to dig for it. it. It was not easy Google search or anything. I was looking at pages that detailed the whole like VPU register set and going through all those. And there was a brief mention about like border color. And I'm like, oh, I'll try this. You know, still looked the same on the emulator, but when I popped it onto the thing, it was, ah, it was black. It's what so I want. So inherently then, it's not because it was a card versus cart. It's just so happens that they set the border color different when programming the ROM I for the... So. I think oh. the ROMs are different. That That's my guess, uh, because then the ROM could set the different bits for that. That would make sense, because I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong. I'm sure somebody from SMS Power is going to email me and call me an idiot. But if, as far as I know... Hang On was released separately as a card, but as a cart, it was always bundled with Safari Hunt. Okay. I think. So that would be, you would have to be a different ROM anyway, because from Sega itself, it would have been two separate files. So Safari Hunt, is that one that also was in the, uh, built into the console? No, that was, uh, maybe. Maybe, it might have been. I never tested that. I, I never tested a, an SMS that had a game built in. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so that that would make sense. That would make total sense then. Hmm. All right, well, that's, that's interesting. And if anybody wants to, to get the perfect output of their SMS, I'm still working on it. I've been promoting the Genesis RGB bypass because I've gotten it to work perfect exactly the way I wanted. I haven't really promoted the SMS yet because I needed to iron out these little kinks. But um, the guy, Voltar, I don't know his real name, and it's always so weird to call people by their online screen names, but... <laughs> The guy, Voltar, um, who's been on the forums for a while, good dude, posts great work. He says he had a cool jailbar fix that helps tremendously. So I'll test that. I'm always going to be cool. testing the bypasses, and I'll, I'll update everybody. And But there is, you know, you could still make your master system look awesome. Um, but if you really want the best, best quality, as far as I know, as of today, you got to use the Genesis to get it. So. Well, I did, um, I did have a question about your cables, too. So I don't want to get too detailed into this because I'm going to be doing an episode either next week or the week after. But um, I was doing a comparison of different upscalers, so the, the XRGB Mini and the Open Source Scan Converter. Um, and I kind of decided, you know, everybody's got their niche. So Fada, um has his detailed reviews of all these upscalers that are awesome. And then you got uh, Wolf from uh, Firebrand yeah. X. Yeah, I know Wolf. I talked to him. Uh, yeah, he does. I mean, he could just uh, detect the slightest bit of scaling, uh, you know, anomalies. Yeah. Anything. He's got his thing. So I figured, why don't I just stick to what I'm good at? And I tested lag on everything. And then I, um, I kind of just the overall feel of it. And I did your cables versus the XRGV Mini, uh, which Wes at Second Opinion Games actually lent me his, so thanks for lending me the Mini for that. But um, And then the open source scan converter, which I bought, which I, I love that so far. Uh, and I kind of wanted, I did the lag test, so I had the signal split, used the GSCART switch to have two outputs, I had it going to an RGB monitor, and then I had it going to my, um, my high-def Sony BVM monitor. So that way I could take the 720p output of the upscaler and put it into that. Oh, so okay. first I tested um, I tested your cables just to try it, which I know it was dumb because there's not going to be any lag between it. But you know, for anybody that was curious, there was no lag. <laughs> um, and then I tested it through a VGA, uh, so a HDMI to VGA 
and an HDMI to SDI converter, which oh, okay. I thought was neat because both of those didn't have any lag at all either, which is cool for SDI. So anybody that has a high-end BVM, you could put a 720p high, uh, HDMI signal into it, which I thought was neat. Um, so the lag tests were pretty cool. And then I, after that, I kind of said, all right, well, let's see a basic feel on a TV. So I have um, a really nice Panasonic Plasma. One of my buddies got me a crazy deal on it when they first came out. So it's professionally calibrated. It's a 1080p set, 50-inch, um, and that has, you know, all the inputs. And then I have a total piece of junk 4K TV I bought just because it was cheaper than a 1080p TV. It was the Seiki and it's just, it's garbage, but it's 4K, so at least, you know, you don't have to worry about anything being off. And I tested the devices on each. And the Seiki TV obviously was terrible, but the one thing that I noticed the biggest difference of is when I put your cables, so a SNES uh, through your cable into the component input, it actually detected it as if it was 480i. And I got a cool slow-mo video I took with my iPhone where you could actually see, like, the text on the screen wiggling back and forth as if it was a shaky interlaced. And it stretched it top to bottom, and it had terrible lag because the TV's bad. And it just, it looked awful. And then I went into my living room and I tested it on the good TV, and it looked phenomenal. So the, the aspect ratio was even correct. It wasn't stretched all the way top to bottom. There, were, there was enough space on it. Um, and then it detected it as if it was a, pre, a progressive scan image. So oh, it, there so was no shakiness to it. Oh, wow. And it looked exactly like uh, the open source scan converter in 480p mode. Sadly, that TV doesn't accept the 720p mode of the OSSC, but there was no difference, you know, pretty much. I got pictures, and I imagine, I didn't expect to see too much because you're talking 240p versus 480p on a 1080p set. So, But um, they performed absolutely perfect. I loved it. So... The question I have is, how are you going to know if your TV can accept a 240p signal and, and have it um, have it use it correctly? So that's the uh, thing. Because, you know, your average person, hey, I love Super Nintendo, got a really great TV, want to play the, my four favorite games, and that's it. They're not going to buy a Framemeister. They're not going to buy the OSSC. They're sure as yeah, hell not going to buy one of my setups with a G-SCART and an Xtron and, you know. So your cables are perfect for that as long as you don't have a shitty TV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, so uh, the, the way we've been handling that is uh, we have this test procedure on our website where if you already have the console you want to use and the composite cable, you can trick the TV into thinking it's doing components oh. uh, by hooking the composite into the uh, Luma channel, and it should process the signal the same way as that's if you awesome. were to. That's, that's how we've been... And and we actually uh, we we let our, our backers know multiple times. Please, you know, test your stuff um, in, in case there's an issue and you don't want us to ship you anything. Uh, and most of them did, and uh, so far the results are really good. But uh, so but, for the component video input, which one, which color? Just to simplify it for people that are just looking at the back of the TV, which color would you plug composite into? So so it's a little. There's a couple different scenarios. I, I, on the website, I kind of separated into two different ones where you have a TV that has separate compose, component and composite video jacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and most don't nowadays. Most new TVs most, just have most, a component. Most TVs now have a shared jack. Oh, yeah, where, that's right. Where it's sometimes they cover, color it half yellow, half uh, green, 
or like a, a green circle inside a bigger yellow circle. <laughs> but they say Y slash video. Okay. Um, and so with those, it's a little more complicated. Most ways for them to detect what's the user put into there is first they have a switch in the, in the Y slash video. You plug something in there, the switch opens up, and the TV knows I, I can select um, the AV input. Mm-hmm. And then it, it thinks you have component if you plug in the um, – it's usually PB I've seen it. As long as you plug something, it could be disconnected on the other end. Mm-hmm. Plug in PB, that switch opens up, and then the TV's like, oh, so this guy plugged component in. I'm going to unlock component in my uh, input selection list. And so what we – for that situation, what we told people is to do exactly that. Plug composite into the shared jack and then plug two dummy cables into the other ones. Select component, and you should get this really messy black and white image. But you can see if it processes it correctly, if you even get a signal. Right. Uh, I'm going to that- try that, too. And um, I... I did like a mini review of your cables, but I didn't want to post it until they're available to the public. So as soon as they are, I'll be able to just do that. But um, that's cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure to add that. I'll do a video on it before too, because that's that is the solution. Then just take your SNES with your composite cable, plug it into green, assuming that yours doesn't have the dual inputs on it, right. and then see how it processes it. And I'll put the my slow mo video up too. It is you do not need to be a tech nerd. It is a very blatant <laughs> difference. The picture either looks looks perfect or uh, the like I was testing it with a 240p test suite so the the actual you know you see the words 240p test suite the two was doing this in the slow-mo video yeah because it was doing that shaky weird interlaced thing so okay but yeah so it was um so that's that's a great answer that's cool um do you guys have a a release date to the public for those yet um well we're June July August yeah, we we're trying for end of June. Um, we when we tested a bunch of cables for Kickstarter backers, uh, there were some issues we found, and we relayed those issues back to the factory, and they went back to check the rest of the production counts, uh, the production uh, the remaining units of that production run, and uh, check for those issues that we found. And so that took a little while. Um, but we're – it's not only that. We were trying to set up a store shop, uh, and that's not too trivial. <laughs> no. So. All right. Well, I'll, I'll post as soon as they're available, but I guess this summer is a safe bet then. So. I think so, yeah. And uh, so what's the, the switch that's on the SNES cables? There's a brightness switch you have on there, right? Right. So when I first uh, – tested everything to make the circuit. I mean, I have this spreadsheets of all these console revisions, and I measure using the test software I wrote for SNES um, I and the other ones, uh, Genesis, Master System, have this giant spreadsheet of values, and I use those to, and I, to calculate, like, optimal circuit values to give the right gain, right brightness, or contrast uh, on... Uh, most of the consoles, and I kind of narrow them down into like two like batches. Um, so like, I, I guess I call them like older SNESs and newer SNESs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the brightness switch is to adjust for um, brightness between these two like kind of groups of consoles. There's SNESs that are too bright, 
Right, so the the one chip consoles in the mini are known to be brighter than the rest. Right. So that's why you would you would flip the switch, and then if you have one of the especially the earlier revisions, you would you would want the brighter one for it to look better. Exactly, uh, and oh. it's for for Super Nintendo, it's not that big of a discrepancy. We mainly have the switch for um, for Genesis because older Master Systems are very weak. Um, yes. Yes. So. And we're using the same cable for Master System and, like, all the Genesis stuff. And so um, that setting, like, is a very big difference, um, that switch setting. And so, so your cables to... handle all those crazy Master System revisions? And it, even what about the MK2000, the Japanese one? Does it should work those? Out. Because I get so many emails, and it got to the point where... You know, I just started telling people, look, if you're if your master system, if you love it and you want to use it, like really think about either doing a bypass or wiring up a second output connector, like use a VGA style jack and just put the right components in. Because the reports I was getting from people, like I, it started to I to the point, yeah, started to be at the point where I almost wasn't believing because it seemed ridiculous, but the the signal was so weak. And then people would put amplifiers in the cable, but that would cause noise and other things. And it was just so uh, I guess with the circuit that you guys have on that, it should work with all of them then? You should. Uh, we, we optimize them into two camps again on the Genesis where um, mainly older master systems and everything else. Um, and so, yeah, the older master systems, you should put it on the brighter setting and you should get a way better um, output. And, uh, I mean, it won't fix jail bars or anything like that. But they, Yeah, it's inherent on the console, but... Yeah, I've tried your SNES cables, but I haven't gotten my hands on the Genesis ones yet. I wanted to order those anyway when they come out, but um, I really want to try that. And, uh, I mean, it would be pretty funny if the best solution was just to get your cable and use that in an RGB monitor. Where you can uh, yeah, right. Like, I, I, I know when I sent uh, My Life in Gaming guys, I sent Corey the Genesis one, and he loved that, that brightness switch for Master System because Master System is one of the dark ones. And he's like, do you know how I could get that on my uh, start cable? For it, and I and he's like uh, somebody told him to remove a resistor, and I told him be careful because yeah. we're have that same problem. Yes. Of, of uh, drawing too much current from the pin. Right. And so you you might not want to do that. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they they still have the audio cable or audio jack on it as well, right? The Genesis cables. Yes, uh, they have. So yeah. this is cool. Both. So for any any master system nerds already going to know what I'm talking about. Everybody else is probably going to be like, well, who cares? But the original Genesis, obviously, you know, if you want stereo sound, you use the headphone jack in front. So that that's why you would have it on that. But anybody that gets the ROM carts that have the FM sound chip in them, it requires you to run the output sound of the SMS into this ROM cart, and then the output sound of the ROM cart to your TV. So you could just get an RCA to you know, 3.5 millimeter jack cable, so people could still take advantage of that, the FM sound ROM carts with that as well. So. Yeah, you could put what actually you could put whatever you want into there. Yeah. If you want to pipe in some, I don't know, some Radiohead or something <laughs> into your Genesis game. You could like when yeah. we were doing the test. Uh, the jacks is a just MP3 player with a guy saying left channel, right channel, left channel, right channel. Uh, that would have driven drove, after about ten yeah, seconds. Yeah, drove Nick nuts because he was testing the Genesis cable. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you could pipe whatever you want in there. So yeah, that for the FM sound thing on the master system. Yeah, that's cool. Pipe, um, 
yeah, I, that was a feature I really wanted to get in there because a lot of people, a lot of people asked us to do it. Um, it's very hard to fit stuff in that small of a space. Yes. It used to be a 2.5 millimeter jack because that's all I could fit. And the, uh, our manufacturer to do the proper overmolding, they first made me shift the board up a little bit for the switch. And when they did that, I saw if I could put a 3.5 in. I'm like, still can't. Uh, and then when they asked me to switch the, put the jack down a bit, I did that and I'm like, I be able to fit <laughs> Yeah, and, 2.5 would have worked fine, but 3.5 is just so much easier because everybody's got a 3.5 millimeter cable, you know? Right, standard headphones. Probably just sitting around, like they don't have to buy a special one. I, I mean, yeah, it's not like they go obsolete. If you had one back in the '90s that came with the Genesis or something, or the Sega CD, you could just use that. You don't have to worry yeah, about it. So. it's just you know the same on each end. And, uh, yeah, it's a cool feature. Uh, I would use it if I hooked up my Genesis one. So, uh, anything else that you guys get coming up? Anything else you guys wanted to mention that's next on the horizon, or just uh, sticking with the cables for now and then kind of dealing with that as it comes? I mean, I've all the the whole vision of the company is to be able to do uh, a full solution for uh, for HD TVs and future, right? 4Ks, 10Ks, 12Ks, like you said uh, in a previous video. Uh, and so, like, the, really, the component cables are like one half of that. I really want to make the other end, which is you know, kind of our own um, video processor the interlacer solution uh, and I kind of want to make it scalable where because so many there's these people that email us like when are you going to release the HDMI's or you know that's the thing I'm talking about because I gave it this goofy name uh, and there's guys that are like I just need it because I just need to get stuff to work and then these guys are like dude man you should put this 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 in it and, and I'm like oh man that's going to be expensive yeah uh, and so I kind of, we might uh, do something where we either scale our basic architecture up and down to maybe other things in the future. I really want to start getting to work on that, but I got to quit my day job. <laughs> I got to, there's, there's so, this stuff takes so much time. It's, yes, yes it does. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, a big market for that and a big hole in the market because you get the Frame Meister, which, you know, it's, this has been the default standard. You get the open source scan converter, which is only yeah. 200 bucks, which is, it's great and it's got a ton of potential, but it's still 200 bucks, and neither of them are, can be optimized for 4K TVs just perfectly. Yeah. And then none of there is nothing under 200 bucks that I would even waste my time on. The lag is just too awful. It looks pretty, but the lag is terrible. I mean, so, our 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 goal for like a base version of this would be under 100 dollars. Like yeah, that's, and that's a target, you know, price as well. That's what we want to to hit. I think we can hit that. Um, we just need more engineering time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so but, I think that I think an inexpensive, low lag version, even if it doesn't yeah. look as good with not as many fancy features, as long right. as there's, as, you know, because the open source scan converter is almost no lag at all. So right. it's under a frame. So I mean, if it's something like that, awesome. And I think there's also, especially, you know. If you if you just bought your crappy Seiki 4K TV like I did, nothing's gonna look good. But you know, if I got a curved OLED 4K TV that I just spent 3,500 bucks on, I'm not gonna mind spending you know 600 dollars on a, a better upscaler for all my consoles. You know, 
And the frame meister and the OSSC are good, and they work. Uh, Wes and I were testing on his 4K TV, and uh, they looked great. You know, and but you're still relying on the TV to do a lot of the work. And it didn't add much lag, but you know, little zoom things, the way scan lines added up, it would have been really nice if we just, you know, had full control over that. So I, I think there's room for both, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to work on that stuff. Um, so. And any other revisions of the cables? I think you guys were talking about Dreamcast for a while now, right? Yeah, so so Dreamcast, uh, I'd like to get to work on that too. Uh, I had, the reason why is uh, I think we can offer a pretty good solution with Dreamcast because uh, we'll be able to switch between a like a 480i slash 240p mode and a 480p mode that's totally compliant with component video. Uh, I was just about to say because the Dreamcast 640 by 480 VGA, it kind of even if you put it through a, a VGA to HDMI adapter, a lot of yeah. TVs don't know how to handle the signal properly, so it, it gets a little weird. Right, it's uh, what it is. Dreamcast VGA is video timings with VGA sync patterns, and so um, if you use the video timings with video sync patterns through like a YPVPR interface, then you don't get that problem. So, hmm. um, that's something we could we think we could use a lot of the same tooling for. The problem is we're having trouble finding the raw connector in its raw form mm. to be able to uh, make these in the quantities. So uh, that's one hurdle. Uh, I still want to do a first spin of prototypes because I've only breadboarded this before. Uh, I'd like to spin up prototypes that are like a cable assembly. So. Gotcha. So that's far off, though, because you still got the rollout of the, the regular cables, the SNES and yeah. the Genesis. So. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I'm sure it's something everybody's looking forward to at some point. So, awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on and for for dealing with all my you know my long and weird questions. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy it though, especially some of the stuff that nobody's nobody's really gone into detail about and, and really nailed down the answer. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, like I said, I love talking about this stuff. Uh, I mean, if we had a whiteboard. We could like go over all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff. Uh, well, I'm sure in a couple more months after we've exchanged another million emails from other problems, I'll have you back on to explain <laughs> all that stuff too. So. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. So. All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah. You too.